Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jerome Wakefield. He's a professor at NYU Silver, as well as an NYU University professor with multidisciplinary appointments, like, for example, affiliate faculty in philosophy and affiliate faculty in bioethics. His clinical training and experience have been within the mental health field and were integrative, including psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, and family training with working agencies as well as private practice. Dr. Wakefield's scholarly specialty is the conceptual foundations of clinical theory, and he's been doing recent work on the concept of mental health, especially how normal negative responses to a problematic social environment can be distinguished from mental disorder and how the SM diagnostic criteria fail to adequately draw this distinction. And those are the topics we're going to focus the most on today. So Dr. Wakefield, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Ricardo. Terrific. So let's start perhaps with the last topic I mentioned then. Uh, what is a mental disorder? Well, this is, uh, remarkably, this is an extremely controversial question. Um, and uh, it's been debated across half a dozen disciplines, not just psychiatry and psychology and social work, but also disciplines like sociology, history of ideas, philosophy, of course, anthropology. And the basic issue here is that people feel we have a pretty solid notion of what a physical disorder is, what, what a medical disorder is. So just leave that aside for a second. When you come to the mind, it becomes blurrier and more controversial what constitutes a mental disorder. And in our own period of time, this issue was raised particularly by a school of thought that have now become labeled the anti-psychiatrists in the 1960s and 1970s, who argued that psychiatry itself was not a true medical dis discipline because the conditions it treats, whether it's depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, that these conditions are not true medical disorders, but they are actually socially disvalued behaviors that we get psychiatry to mislabel as medical disorders so that we can control the behavior on our behest. So this is why the question of what is a mental disorder became a major multidisciplinary issue, because it's really at the foundation of whether we have a psychiatric discipline that's part of medicine as well as a human rights and social control issue. That is, the anti-psychiatrists argued, look, basically psychiatry is for social control, not medical treatment. And so it's actually controlling us. And so there was a lot of reaction against psychiatry. So my view, which um, develops out of other views, but, but was somewhat different than what was occurring at the time I wrote, is that a mental disorder, first of all, should be considered, let's put it this way, to understand what we mean by mental disorder that legitimates psychiatry's role as a medical discipline, which I think it should be, um, you have to have disorder in the phrase mental disorder 
mean exactly the same thing it means in the phrase physical disorder or medical disorder. You can't just make up a new idea, which is what many people were doing, to try to figure out what you'd like to mean by mental disorder. That doesn't meet the anti-psychiatric criticism. So how do you do that? You analyze the concept of a medical disorder. And the answer, it seemed to me, was that there really is only one way of understanding disorder, medical, physical, and mental. And that is when something has gone wrong, this is an intuitive phrase so far, when something has gone wrong with the way you're functioning. So function is a central idea. So mental disorder is simply something has gone wrong with psychological functioning in the same sense, we'll get to what that sense is in a second, as you mean when something has gone wrong, when you have heart disease or, or uh, COVID or whatever, where something has gone wrong with the way you're physically functioning. So the question is, what does something gone wrong mean here? And it seems to me the only possible answer in our era that can be given is that it's a failure of some mechanism, physical or psychological, to do something that it was biologically designed to do. That is, it's an evolutionary concept. Because frankly, that's the only objective sense that's independent of human values really, where we could now you know, endlessly politically debate what we'd like to classify as a disorder. That's the, an objective sense of how we are biologically designed and when something goes wrong. If you are unable to see in normal light with your eyes open and nothing is occluding you, something's gone wrong with the way your eyes are biologically designed to function, and so you have a medical disorder. Similarly, if you believe that we are biologically designed to have certain emotions, to be able to think certain ways, then if something goes wrong with that, that doesn't allow those functions to be performed even under normal circumstances where they should be capable of being performed, then you can say legitimately and really there is a mental disorder in the same sense. And I think that's an evolutionary sense. Now I think, I think in terms of the anti-psychiatrist look, to be blunt about it, if you uh, come from a family as I do where there has been mental illness, or you yourself have suffered from various disorders, maybe not the most severe kind, but uh, you know some anxiety or whatever, depressive disorders in your life, which I have, I think the idea that there's no such thing as a mental disorder on its face is absurd. So we need to explain what the concept is that allows this to be a legitimate foundation for a medical discipline. And that's what I've tried to do in what I've called my harmful dysfunction view. So I believe a, a medical disorder, whether physical or mental, is a harmful dysfunction, where dysfunction means that something in us, often we don't know what that is, we're simply guessing at certain stages of the development of medicine from context that something's gone wrong, but we don't understand how it's supposed to go right, or we don't understand the mechanisms yet, but we judge it anyway. And we judge that something's going wrong, and 
endless things go wrong. I mean, every time you step out in the sun, the sun falling on your nose causes millions of small genetic anomalies or mutations. So at that site on the genome of that particular cell, something's gone wrong, but nobody thinks you have a medical disorder. It has to harm the person for it to be considered a medical or mental disorder. So, I mean, this, this explains, I think the, the virtue of, of evolution coming in here is that it explains, so biological design is something that's been at the heart of biology since Aristotle. And of course, theists have believed that what looks like biological design is due to God, God designing us in certain ways. A theist and an atheist who reads Darwin can agree more or less from the context where things have gone wrong from what they're designed to be. And therefore, medicine can proceed without having to, you know, create uh, um, a world of Darwinists. But the fact is that modern science has, in fact, explained where biological design comes from, namely, from natural selection, at least for us that believe in, you know, evolutionary theory. So um, the, the answer to the question of when has something gone wrong can now be referenced in terms of evolutionary theory. So with all of that in mind, let's get into an example of what is at least considered a mental disorder, uh, just to illustrate what we're talking about here, uh, something we've been doing work on. Uh, what is depression then? And what do you think is the best way of approaching it theoretically and clinically, for example? Well, what depression is specifically from a mm, biological or you know general view we don't understand it yet to be honest like grief and like sleep for that matter we have these major features of how we're biologically designed we can tell from context that this isn't accidental all cultures people in all cultures become depressed um, under pretty predictable circumstances it appears to be part of our nature, and we presume that there wouldn't be something that salient about us unless it had been naturally selected to be that way, because if it was just harmful, it probably would have been selected out over periods of evolutionary history. But exactly why it's there and how it functions and what are the biological brain foundations of it, we know quite a bit. I think the main thing to understand is that we don't know much, that we don't have an incisive theory of it any more than we do of, say, sleep. I mean, there's a lot of theories of why we sleep, but think of it this way. Sleep is probably the single most harmful condition of the human race. Sleep takes away one third of our lifespan and renders us uh, basically periodically hallucinating and, you know, paralyzed, so, semi-paralyzed for eight hours. Now, look, if 
we didn't see that this is probably, from all the contextual evidence, part of our biological design, we would think this is a massive horrific disorder. <laughs> but we see that it's biologically designed. Now, depression, think of depression in part as kind of a psychological, and this is very rough, but I mean, it's just a way to think about it, a psychological analog of sleep. Because the mystery about sleep is what good does it do us to withdraw from the world for eight hours and be vulnerable? The mystery about depression is why do we withdraw? Why downgrade your activity and your affect? Why become hopeless? What good is this to any living organism to become less functional in this way that depression makes us. So studies suggest that depression is like, so like all emotions, emotions are transient changes, transformations in our mental state that affect everything, how, how we think, what evidence we pay attention to, and what we do, how we behave, and so on. They're global transformations. Depression seems to be a global transformation that takes place in the face of perceived loss of resources, of status, uh, of other people that we depend on. Wide range, and we're because we're so smart as human beings, we symbolize and we see losses where maybe they're not literally obviously there uh, sitting in front of us. I mean, I can, you know, walking down the street, you see a newspaper that says stock market drops 25% and you can become depressed from, those, from this totally abstract sentence. So that, that said, the studies of depression under natural circumstances suggest that it is a way of withdrawing your energy and your commitment and holding back when things aren't going well and perhaps it would be safer to hold back and to reinvest your energies elsewhere at some point. So a wonderful analogy to this that actually empirically is supported by field studies is that when um, a, a, a chimpanzee loses um, a, a, a dominance dispute, let's say a dominant male loses a dominance battle to a, a, another one, uh, primate, they often get depressed. In fact, you can do, they slink away, their faces look sad, <laughs> and you can actually do studies of their blood that show that their cortisol levels and other you know, biochemical hormonal levels change the way ours do when we're depressed, and they slink off. Now, studies show, this is remarkable, I think, that the ones that slink off have a longer lifespan than the ones that don't slink off. Why is this? Because the ones that don't slink off tend to be perceived by the newly dominant primate as, as a lurking potential threat. Mm -hmm. And therefore, mm -hmm. they tend to get into fights and they tend to get hurt. So think, think of depression as a withdrawal to re rethink and process 
very complex social changes in your status, dominance, resources, and to um, reconfigure where your energies will go. I think, you know, this is very complicated because when you lose somebody, of course, we're getting onto grief a bit, but when you lose somebody, everything you depend on, everything, the way you thought about your life changes. This takes intense processing. Uh, there's complex social changes uh, and withdrawal can allow you to gradually process these sorts of things. Or if something you've depended on, like your marriage is going bad, depression can enable you to withdraw. There are other theories that depression is a signal that you need help and so on. But I think this theory that it's a way of renegotiating your commitments when something is not going right and you've lost something you depended on for your situation in life seems the most appealing kind of view and the most empirically sustainable view. So clinically, um, how do you distinguish, let's say, normal sadness and sorrow from actual clinical depression? Well, this is like the $64 question, and I, <clears throat> I wish there were a simple answer. But the fact of the matter is that human emotion is highly flexible. It's often very difficult to tell what is truly pathological, where something has gone wrong with emotional processing from normal, intense emotional reactions. This is true for so, uh, several reasons. I'll just name a couple of them. I mean, one thing is that emotion, because it's a specifically designed response to a certain kind of environmental context, it tends to be calibrated according to the level of the contextual threat or change. So the more horrible the thing is, or let's say with fear, the more threatening it is, so on. With grief, the closer you were and the more you depended, the more the emotion takes place to, the more intense the emotion that takes place is likely to be. So first of all, we have a problem that for psychiatry, it's very easy to try to depend on the intensity of emotion to label it a disorder, but that's not entirely valid. That is, there are two dimensions here, not one. It's not just intensity, higher intensity, more likely it's disordered. It's not only intensity, but the likelihood that it's dysfunctional, that something went wrong in generating it. So you could have a mildly depressed person chronically having a disorder of their sadness mechanisms, whatever those are, um, and, and being disordered. Or you could have an intensely sad person after major losses being fired from a job that they valued and that which from which they got much of their self-esteem and status, let's say, or losing their retirement fund that their whole life had been devoted to building up because they're fired before it vests by a, in a large corporation, let alone the standard things of, of failure in other projects or losing a partner or whatever. Um, so you could have very intense reactions that are totally normal. And so that's number one, that's, that's number one. Number two, the way that emotions are designed um, 
they often are designed to be overreactive, to not take any chances. Um, my colleague Randy Nessie uh, calls this the smoke detector principle, which is a good name for it. Um, and the, the logic here is that evolutionarily, you don't, certain horrible outcomes have to be avoided. And if you have a lot of false, you know, reactions that aren't too costly, that doesn't matter too much. Uh, as long as you avoid the horrible reaction, like like your smoke detector in your apartment going off when you're cooking fish. I mean, right. nothing bad is happening, but you don't want to take a chance that it's a real fire, so you set it rather low. So therefore, so with us, for instance, let's take anxiety. Let, let's take a simple thing like snake phobia. We could have been biologically designed to be afraid of certain snakes that are poisonous, but not to have any reaction to garter snakes and other snakes, but that's complicated for our cognitive system to develop that. And you can easily make a mistake in a, just a moment you're on a trail and there's a snake in front of you. So generally speaking, when people are afraid of snakes, as many people are, they're just afraid of snakes. Um, I mean, I've been in a swimming pool when a garter snake jumped into it with me. And I was like Superman. I mean, I flew out of the water. It was amazing how quickly I responded with anxiety and jumped out of the water, even though in my mind, I was telling myself, this is probably harmless. So these reactions can be, so again, it becomes difficult sometimes to distinguish normal emotion because it's intense and overly intense, maybe irrationally intense, from um, emotion that is truly disordered. So the way that one would have to do it then is number one, try to understand how an emotion works. What are the contextual cues that trigger it? What are the likely standard outcomes of that emotion that the symptoms as we let's call it symptoms, even though that usually means disordered, but I'll use that generic term for the things that happen in, affectively, behaviorally, and so on. Um, understand the symptoms that usually occur and distinguish those from signs of disorder. So with depression, my research uh, tends to support a hypothesis put forward long ago by Paula Clayton, namely that there really are certain symptoms that are more likely to indicate a chronic recurrent problem that could be considered a likely disorder of depression generating mechanisms, whatever they are, um, and versus a normal reaction. So the way the DSM has defined depression, it has nine symptom groups from which you have to have any five. The problem with this is, so let me back up for a second. The way these symptom groups came about was back in the era when most psychiatry was done inside hospitals. Mm -hmm. And the problem then was not going into the community like we do today and trying to label everybody as either depressed or not depressed. The problem then was that the diagnosis of depression was often missed in people because 
depression has many somatic symptoms that often go along with it. And doctors in hospitals weren't very educated in psychiatry. And they would label people as having somatic disorders. And only six months later would they figure out, oh, this person has a, a major depressive disorder. So these early studies where they tried to define symptoms to identify depression were aimed at creating criteria that could distinguish people who had depression from people who had somatic disorders. Now, if you're doing that, then there's a lot of things that might help you, like let's say insomnia. Depressed people in general have insomnia, whether you're normally or, or abnormally depressed, you have insomnia. Uh, physically disordered people don't necessarily have insomnia. And, and so on. Um, so there, and of course, mood changes, obviously mood changes, uh, changes in appetite. There's all sorts of things that might help you to distinguish depressed people from physically disordered people. Here's the problem. The problem is when psychiatry went into the community, now you're dealing with a different problem you're dealing with the problem of distinguishing masses of normally depressed people from disordered depression. If you use those same symptoms, they're not designed to do that. And many normal depressive symptoms can help you distinguish depressed people from somatic people, but aren't gonna help you distinguish normally depressed people from pathologically depressed people. So this is one of the original sins of the depression literature in psychiatry. The studies, really very few studies were done to try to identify in a community what's gonna help you distinguish pathological from normal depression. My work strongly suggests using epidemiologism, an empirical aspect of my work, I have about 10 years of epidemiologic studies that strongly suggest that there are a set of symptoms that are well known, but they're only a subset of DSM symptoms that do tend to indicate a worse course, recurrent symptoms, suicidal ideation that suggests disorder. And those symptoms might include psychomotor retardation or agitation where you are totally slowed down, even your, your words, your thinking, your body is extremely slowed down. Obviously, psychotic ideation would be another one. Severe impairment, I'm not talking here about moderate impairment, um, where maybe you don't feel like going out with your friends as much, you're a little more distant from your family, and so on, but severe impairment, where you're really withdrawn over a longer period of time. What period of time? Talking about six months here, continuous, because that can happen. Obviously, we all know during grief, people withdraw, don't wanna see other people, don't wanna to go to work for some period of time. If it's more than six months, I think that's a period that's just roughly, it's somewhat arbitrary, but somewhat roughly where you would start to think, hmm, this could be predictive of something more serious. Um, deep, sense of lack of self-worth. This, not, I'm not talking here about 
normal regrets. If only I had done this, they wouldn't have fired me. I, I loved her so much, I should have been nicer before this horrible thing happened and I lost her. You know, we all have regrets. We all feel these feelings. But if you start to feel totally worthless in your own self, this, by the way, can be a predictor of suicidal ideation. I'm so worthless, I'm a burden to everybody. They'd be better off without me. So that would be another, you know, kind of indicator. So these are, these are just some, without going through all the symptoms, the point is that the other symptoms, such as, you know, depressed mood, less appetite, difficulty concentrating on your normal tasks, um, insomnia, those kind of symptoms, frankly, people have them all the time during normal reactions of distress, whether it's depression, anxiety, and we're conf those are all in the DSM criteria. So we're confusing in the community normal emotional reactions, which are serious and people may need help. I'm not saying there shouldn't be help. I'm just saying there's a difference between disorder and a normal reaction that is reactive to a situation and may well ameliorate on its own as the situation goes away or as you normally grapple with it or redirect your resources. So that helps. That's part of the answer. The, the, we used to have answers about, you know, uh, various uh, neurochemicals and so on. Those, as you know, probably, there's been a lot of studies recently that suggest that our theories um, about how depression actually happens in the brain are really not supportable by the evidence. So the answer is we don't really know exactly what happens in the brain. Of course, there's new theories to take the place of the old theories, but um, these are theories. There really is no solid understanding of exactly how this happens and what triggers it. Yeah, uh, I will ask you um, in a bit about those sort of biological factors behind depression and what we know about them. But just before that, uh, taking into account all of what you just said, what can we say about rates of depression? Because we hear and read everywhere that rates of depression have been going up more or less across the globe. But with all of those issues surrounding uh, diagnostic criteria, clearly. I mean, do we have good enough information to really say if rates of depression have really been going up, if there are more and more people suffering from it, or if it's a matter of, for example, over-diagnosis? You know, the problem is that psychiatrists have their criteria. These criteria like the ones I described from DSM, where they have nine different symptoms that you figure out if somebody had five of them at the same time, then they have major depressive disorder. And the studies aren't done in a way that would mm, separate people very well. So the answer is we don't know. And the answer is that almost certainly these statistics that we have are not meaningful in terms of disorder. Um, it's an extreme thing to say, but when you get these statistics, 
they're they're very malleable. First of all, if you ask people to remember, they give you one answer. If you follow them and ask them every year, you get a much higher rate of major depression, twice as much. Um, I calculate from looking at the rates that we have, I calculate that maybe three quarters of the entire population will suffer from major depressive disorder during their lifetime, according to the current criteria. Now, three or four decades ago, physicians were trained to think that one to 2% of the population would get a major depressive disorder. How is this possible? Have we discovered that this is really, you know, the common cold of psychiatry, it's a disorder, but everybody has it? Or are we just using poor criteria? I think and encompassing normal human reactions. I think it's the latter. And I think the research that I've done epidemiologically tends to show at least to some extent that that's true. Um, the rates are so high um, and they, they, they vary so tremendously that one can't help but think that they are mostly made up of normal reactions to changing social conditions. For instance, with COVID, it was claimed that the rate of depression went skyrocketing now, especially in young people. Um, now, I, I'm not saying it's not a problem to be addressed, but I am saying that in previous disaster scenarios, you get these high rates, and then after the disaster passes, the, the high rates pass also. Um, after 9-11, in, in Manhattan, the, the, the World Trade Center attacks, they, they did all these studies that show that symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD were rising rapidly. What did it all come to six months later? There was hardly any rise. And the degree that there was a rise in mental health access was people who had mental disorders before the attacks, who, who needed more attention after the attacks. It was not a general rise in mental disorder that was sustained and showed something having gone wrong with the way the mind was functioning. So I think you have to take these statistics with a grain of salt. The criteria are so loose. I'll give you an example. The very latest epidemiologic study, it's a cross-sectional study, again, where they ask people today to tell you what they remember. Let's take the one year. They do lifetime and one year question. The one year is a little bit more reliable because you can kind of remember better what's happened to you in the last year. So in the one year data of everyone, some very large number, I forget, 18% of the population, you know, or maybe it was less, it was, I don't remember the actual percentage that said they were depressed. But here's what's important. Of everyone who said that they had symptoms that qualified them for major depressive disorder. About 13% of those people had their episodes after they lost somebody in their lives, and the episode lasted less than two months. Now, would you and I want to classify those people as having a major mental disorder? I'm not so sure we would. I think most people would say, you know, if you lose somebody close to you, as I said before, the kind of processing, depending on who they were, how close you were to them, um, were your resources based on them or did you have your own resources? Are your friends and people you hung out with kind of still there or were they all through the person that you loved? 
these are contextual factors that will affect how depressed you are for a while after you lose somebody and 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 how you how how mm, interpersonally intimate you are you know the phenomenologist merleau ponty i think described this beautifully saying that when you're in a close intimate relationship you actually see the world through joint eyes you experience everything in a different way because the way you experience it adjusts for how the other person might experience it and how the, what they might say is sort of part of you at that point. So to process that that's no that person's no longer there and that you're, so to speak, disengaging your experience of the world from a joint experience of the world that you've had is an extremely demanding process. So the answer is that clearly there is at least a good probability that a large percentage of these cases are not mental disorders, but people reacting to negative things in their lives. And of course, the social, our, our societies may, to social pressures, our societies make enormous demands on us that are not always consistent with the way we're biologically designed. And a lot of people find difficulty handling it, and they find their sense of self-worth and status challenged. Um, so social conditions bring on these feelings as well. So I think we need, we need a new approach that attempts to more precisely distinguish true disorders that require one response and depression due to contextual factors that may require different responses, including social responses to restructuring our environment to make us flourish and vital rather than feeling hurt all the time or inadequate all the time or overwhelmed all the time. Uh, and what about, uh, what do we know really about the biological factors that play or might play a role in depression? We have, for example, behavioral genetics, we have studies about chemical imbalances, anatomical <clears throat> brain abnormalities sometimes. <clears throat> Are we sure about any of that or not? No. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, look, right? That that your your you know it was a brain it was, to be simple it was a neural it was an imbalance in a certain neurotransmitter that theory everybody in the field knew was wrong 20 years ago from various pieces of evidence the most thorough study ever was just published this year that went through all the possible ways somebody might try to figure out why that could be true and showed that none of it works it's just plain wrong. Now, but, but is that uh, sorry? Is that the dopamine or the serotonin? Oh, serotonin. Sorry. Oh, yes, oh, right. oh, yeah, because you were saying dopamine, so sorry, I was I'm a bit confused. Sorry, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm good. too much looking at ADHD where dopamine. Is. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Serotonin theory. So the 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 next theory up is that there's something about um, loss of neurons during, you know, depression and re inability to rebuild those neurons and so on. 
But again, this is very theoretical. And the reality is that our brain does break down and reconstruct neurons in accordance with various. The, the idea that this is a pathology is just a pure theory at this point that really has no no grounding in 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 careful research and you know something that's been proven so we're really at sea about this um there the genetics has been largely disappointing people still trying um as you may know i mean the problem is they do these studies and they come up with multiple genes that have such small effect that it's sort of meaningless from the point of view of clinical medicine. You can't go out and try to correct this genetic anomaly as if there's one thing that, that is causing it. And, and all the genes that we know about together cause only a tiny bit of the variation in depression. So it's been extremely disappointing in that area. There are certain things that they've identified. Um, so for instance, um, the fact that you have uh, high neuroticism in the technical sense, not the pathological sense, but the technical personality sense of uh, Hans Eysenck's original idea that you, 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 you're a person who just genetically and constitutionally has a higher reaction to negative events, uh, higher negative affective reactions. So your person tends to get more anxious and depressed. You know, if you, if you have high neuroticism, you are more likely to develop a depressive or anxiety disorder. But that's a normal trait. It doesn't tell you what goes wrong. Um, and um, we're hardly gonna go out there and take you know, a quarter of the population and try to change their natural constitutional nature. We have to focus in on, well, where, where does that go wrong? Nor does it discriminate it, it's equally probable that you'll develop an anxious or an, or a depressive, I don't know about equally probable, but the point is it, it, it predicts at a higher rate the development of both anxiety and depressive disorders, which actually overlap a lot. The whole division is questionable ever since Hippocrates, but Hippocrates put them together under melancholia as excessive fear or sadness. And most psychiatrists through history have seen that anxiety is a typical symptom of depression. But to make diagnosis more reliable, DSM separated them, which is absurd because 70% of depressive conditions have anxiety. Leaving all that complexity aside, the point is we want to know what causes generalized anxiety disorder, which is a horrible disorder, versus major depression, which is a horrible disorder when they're true disorders, um, and they're totally different. And the fact that if you're high on neuroticism, you might have a higher chance of getting either of those doesn't really solve our problem all that well. It might put us on the track of looking at causal factors. So the answer to your question is, where although at the cutting edge, everybody always feels very excited by new ideas and new theories, uh, we're, we're not very far along. And when you do find something, let's say, with more severe disorders like schizophrenia, um, <clears throat> of course, we have some good drugs for, you know, that help with schizophrenia or bipolar. But when you're doing these studies to try to identify a biological source, 
invariably, it seems, I'm mean, very frustrating. You find something that might look promising, you do a study, and it turns out, yes, it slightly predicts, if you have this higher than other people, it slightly predicts more pro that you have a higher chance of getting this disorder, but it doesn't tell you how that happens, and it so overlaps with the normal population that it's no good as a diagnostic instrument. You can't say, oh, people who are somewhat higher on this can be diagnosed because there's loads of people who never get that disorder who are just as high on it. So it's just a slight probability without a clear mechanism. So all these studies, many, 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 that seem to identify factors, biological factors based on brain scans and so on, haven't helped much. And, and, you know, we're very, we still seem to be distant from uh, a true biological understanding. The brain is just that darn complicated that our intuitive notions don't quickly bring us to an understanding. What about treating depression? With all of that in mind, can we trust the studies that, that we have when it comes to the different psychotherapeutical approaches to treating depression or not? I think here again, as with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder that I mentioned earlier, you, you, you can learn empirically, as medicine always has, because, because medicine starting 2,500 years ago understood nothing. They understood nothing about how we work they understood nothing about why the disorders exist, but the, nonetheless, they, in some cases, they found things that empirically show could help people. So when you recognize something's gone wrong, you start to look for something that's different about the person that you might address, or something that if you give them, them to the person or do them to the person might make a difference. I will say that 98% of the time we're wrong <laughs> and much of the time we harm people. Um, but but um, with depression, um, as with other disorders, there are treatments that seem to help some percentage of people. Now, I think that in my own mind, both um, antidepressant medication uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy, the most prominent form of psychotherapy, helps some people. I think that's establishable, but are way overhyped and way, you know, exaggerated in their effectiveness. Um, with with medication, especially the most prominent one now, the SSRIs. Um, you know, as happens with all these medications. Remember the the um, Valium panic back in the 1960s and 70s in America, where everybody was taking Valium to calm them down from our anxiety-provoking society, and we thought that was safe. And then it turned out, no, there was a certain price to pay in terms of addiction and ruined lives. And that's when Congress came in and made the FDA be more demanding about drug approvals. Um, uh, we did get something good out of it, namely the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper, right? Uh, she, she's, there's, she's not really sick, but she takes her little yellow pill to get through her day. So I think, you know, that's what's complicated here. People want help 
with normal emotions as well as disordered emotions, and they're willing to go out in order to sustain their life, even if their life is causing them emotional distress, they're, to, to sustain what they love, they're willing to go out and get medication if it's there. And then once the medication is there, there's social pressure to get it, so that young people today tell me that if they're out of work for more than a day, it doesn't matter what happened to you or how sad you are, go, go get an antidepressant. There's that pressure. But the evidence shows that antidepressants probably help a small proportion of the people who take them. What I mean by small, this is very hard to judge, and it's just a guess, but maybe 20%, 25% of the people do respond positively. How they have, on, and they're the more severe cases. The mass of people out there that are getting them probably rarely are helped, but there's a huge placebo effect where they feel more hopeful, they feel better. And I, I can tell you, it's one of the paradoxes. The evidence says what I'm telling you, but if I ask all my friends who are taking antidepressants or ask my friends who treat people with depression all day, they all say, oh yeah, they help, people feel better, you know? So it's the paradox that these things always seem to be doing well initially. Um, are they doing well is a serious evidential issue. I would say the evidence suggests that they're helping a small percentage and the rest of the people, maybe they're having a placebo effect. Now, the bad side of this is that the whole idea of the SSRIs was that they were relative to earlier treatments like the tricyclics and others, that they were less likely to cause a negative reaction, negative side effects. Although we, we all learned about the sexual problems that come about, everybody was worried about those, but in terms of other negative side effects, they were considered to be safer. But as I read the research coming out now, as often happens, it takes time for the negative effects to percolate out in the data, especially if they're somewhat rare but you know, when you have a somewhat rare negative effect to, for a drug that's being given to millions of people, how many people are taking these drugs? Uh, one statistic that's kind of fun is of all women in the United States who are over 55 years of age, about a quarter of them are on antidepressants at any one time, a quarter of that whole population segment. Um, Similarly, there's very, very high rates of taking antidepressants in the United States and in many other countries. So you're giving these pills to millions and millions and millions of people. So you want to pay attention to the negative side effects. Um, it's similar with the opiates and, you know, painkillers. When people decided you could give um, opiate painkillers to non-cancer pain, there were millions and millions of people who have chronic non-cancer pain that started taking them. Only a very small percentage became addicts, but it was enough to cause a major crisis in our country, the most horrible one we've ever had. So um, similarly, new evidence tends to suggest that coming off of antidepressants is more difficult than anybody ever imagined, that there are effects on emotionality generally in some people that are problematic, that in older people, 
they can have certain biochemical effects, which I won't go into the details, but they can actually cause an increase in falling and possibly even in death rates. Um, and other such evidence that's emerging that the negative effects are bigger and more serious than we imagined, and to some degree should get us to be more cautious about handing them out the way they're being handed out now. So that's where we stand. I mean, you know, uh, there are new treatments, but each new treatment, um, it's very exciting when you hear about it. Um, it's probably not going to be as good as what people are saying. Um, and there, there are experimental treatments, but already many of these new experimental treatments are finding they're limited or they habituate quickly and you don't keep getting the result or they have some negative effects that weren't perceived initially. So I would say overall, we're trying hard empirically without adequate full understanding. We are helping some people. We're probably harming some people. Uh, and in general, the treatments are overhyped and probably overprescribed given the data that we have. That would be my assessment. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you now about anxiety because also, of course, it's also one of the most commonly diagnosed uh, disorders when it's a disorder, of course. So evolutionarily speaking, what is anxiety? What functions does it serve? And how do we distinguish it from depression? Right. Well, you know, as I said before, anxiety and depression often go together, which makes sense, right? If you've lost something and your emotional reaction is to withdraw and, so to speak, lick your wounds and figure out what to do next, I mean, just commonsensically, but this is the emotional reaction we've been given to force us to do that, um, then anxiety is likely to be associated with it because you also are looking to the future. If you think about one, one article long ago, I remember reading that I thought got it right in terms of like classical philosophy, Socrates, what is, what is according to Socrates, what is anxiety or fear? It's the belief in future day and future evil to you. So anxiety is so to speak, a future looking emotion that attunes you to potential danger to yourself in the future or potential loss in the future and activates you to flee or fight or, or, or try to prevent that loss or make up for that loss or do something. Whereas depression is past looking to some extent, You've, the loss has occurred and now you have to recalibrate yourself and that's complicated because these are very deep things, as I was saying before. And so I see them as going together because almost every situation of threat or loss has the opposite potentially in it to some degree. And so they tend, they, that's why they tend to happen together. But th this is the thing, they can happen totally separately. Um, so if anxiety is an emotional reaction that is aimed, it has the function of protecting us 
from future threat that we perceive that's not immediately present or immediately present. There you have even the startle response would be on the road to anxiety. Um, then um, you could have obviously disorders of it. Uh, if I didn't go into this with depression, but the disorders would be if the context in which it's biologically designed to be triggered are no longer triggering it or the other contexts are triggering it that weren't biologically designed to trigger it. I mean, the most obvious and common example of this is panic disorder, where you have an intense anxiety reaction that's being triggered in completely harmless, meaningless circumstances. Um, and you try to understand, is something going on that's perceived as danger at an unconscious level? What's going on here? Um, so similarly with depression, I should say, in severe depression, there are cases where it just comes out of the blue. It makes no sense in terms of the context. Uh, you can't help but believe there's a disorder occurring that the emotion has been disengaged from what it's biologically designed to do. So similarly with anxiety, <clears throat> I can tell you that I suffered from generalized anxiety during graduate school for a while. It's horrible um, because there's nothing that you can, nothing obvious that's triggering it. You just chronically feel highly anxious and it's a physiological thing. Interesting story about DSM is that the Anxiety Disorders Committee came under control of cognitive therapists, which had a lot of good insights into panic disorder uh, and other, you know, where you understand panic disorder as a fear of having a heart attack because your anxiety makes your heart go faster. So there, that's the fear that then triggers it getting even more, getting even more anxious, like a cycle that rat, r ratchets it up. But with generalized anxiety disorder, here's the problem. Freud is the one that defined this condition originally as anxiety neurosis. And Freud defined it in his cases as undirected anxiety or free floating anxiety. Now I can tell you from personal experience, that's what it can be like. In my case, that's what it was like. Yes, I was worried about doctoral exams and philosophy, which are really tough. Yes, I was. <laughs> Yes, I was worried about my relationship, whatever. But the feeling was totally out of proportion and chronic without any immediate trigger. And it was intense. Now, um, I so the point I'm trying to make here is that the DSM committee, because it was cognitively oriented, really couldn't theoretically accept Freud's description. For a cognitivist, every emotion is due to a cognition. You cannot have truly free-floating, anxious activation. It has to be due to a cognition. And so they redefined it not as the somatic anxiety activation, but more as chronic worry about a lot of things, which have content, right? Worry, I have three worries. Oh, can I support myself through the rest of graduate school? Oh, what's gonna happen with my girlfriend? You have a lot of worries. In effect, they defined it as worry disorder, 
And somebody actually proposed re re renaming it worry disorder. So um, what's interesting about this to show, this is why DSM tries to remain theory neutral, because you get these theories coming in and then you get exclusions and theoretical narrowness. So here's an interesting point. My disorder has no place in DSM anymore. I can't, I was not worried about various things. I was just activated all the time anxiously so that the new cognitive view of anxiety disorder didn't, doesn't really apply to Freud's uh, concept of anxiety disorder. So there are people out there who have this. They may not be worried. So whoever you are out there, I just want you to know you can really have a disorder even if you're not actually worried about multiple things. In any event, um, I think um, that with anxiety, we do have very good drugs for many, many anxiety um, conditions. I mean, you know, um, benzodiazepines are, are really amazing drugs. Of course, we have this addiction problem. But I mean, unlike antidepressants, which you have to take for three weeks before you know if it's working, you may have to take two or three different ones before you hit one that may work. Um, and for some people, none of them work. You know, you take a benzo and your anxiety in most people is going to be going down within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I think in that area, we are better off and including social anxiety here. Uh, SSRIs are, are prescribed for social anxiety um, as well. Uh, but social anxiety is a big problem in our culture. Uh, m many people who have what's called anxiety disorder have what's called performance only type anxiety disorder, which is a social anxiety that comes about only when you're in front of other people trying to communicate with a large group. Um, a lot of people do have anxiety when they're at a party talking to strangers, mm -hmm. maybe, well, may well be normal range anxiety. Again, like with depression, you have a large range of normal reactions that can be easily confused with true pathology. But when it comes to social performance, I have no doubt that we are biologically designed as a species to be quite wary about performing in front of a large group of strangers staring at us and evaluating our performance. I think in more primitive conditions, you don't know what's going to happen at the end of that performance. <laughs> and, and I quite understand it. So I would, I would say, and I would say here that although I don't believe some of these are true disorders, I would say that our society owes it to people as a matter of justice to try to help them because so many professions in our mass communication society depend on conquering your anxiety about these conditions. I've gone on for a while, but have I answered your question actually uh, in all this? Uh, yes, uh, I was just going to ask you now, uh, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, earlier, when we were talking about depression, we mentioned some of the issues and criticisms that people put forth about uh, the, diag the diagnostic criteria. Does the same apply to anxiety? Absolutely. I mean, I think with anxiety, the criteria are a little tighter, not as obviously 
majorly flawed as the depression criteria. But um, with anxiety conditions as well, it's, it's very, very easy to confuse, again, uh, for the criteria to confuse normal reactions with uh, pathological reactions. And part of this is because the criteria depend very heavily, without going into the details, the criteria depend very heavily on the intensity of the anxiety. And the fact of the matter is, we are biologically designed to feel intense anxiety. This is what the kind of situation I was talking about earlier, where making a mistake is important, more important than suffering a bit and making some, sorry, I should say making a mistake about a danger being there and not seeing the danger is more, that's a bigger mistake than simply having to feel anxiety five or 10 times when no danger is there. So we are designed to overreact. And these overreactions can easily be misinterpreted as phobias uh, that are disorders um, or, or as um, a social anxiety disorder rather than normal anxiety as we're biologically designed. They may well cause real problems, as I said, in life. If you have social anxiety, you may not be able to advance in your career in a corporation that demands mass communication. So I'm all for helping people with these problems, but to label everybody with them disordered seems to me to mm, extend domains that really we should understand are our society's ways of stretching us uh, and, and deserve our sympathy for people who aren't naturally gifted in that area. Right. Uh, since we've been talking about depression and anxiety from an evolutionary perspective, and because, of course, uh, these emotions evolved in particular environments and uh, that perhaps evolutionary psychologists would call the environment of evolutionary adaptedness or something like that, and because nowadays in modern industrialized or post-industrial societies we live in environments that not complete they are not completely different but in many ways are very much different from the environments of traditional societies for example do you think that we should take that into account when it comes to considering uh, how they might trigger anxiety or depression I think, number one, clinicians would be well advised to talk with their clients about this. And because for many clients, it can actually be somewhat of a relief if you say, you know, I know that we're labeling your condition a disorder, we get reimbursement to treat you, but I just want you to know that what you're experiencing is very close to the way that human beings are biologically designed to react in an adaptive way. Mm -hmm. It may not be adaptive for you in this modern environment, but that's the way we are biologically designed. What you're feeling is a natural human reaction to certain things and the way you're interpreting them. And so I think number one, to some degree, normalizing rather than over pathologizing is actually a helpful treatment tactic because clients can calm down about the issue of, 
how deeply flawed am I if I'm feeling this? How horrible person am I if I would feel this? So that's number one. And I, I do think that we are all engaged throughout our lives in what, let's call it, niche construction. I mean, in a way, the world, the life we construct for ourselves, the life we construct for ourselves, is everything okay? I was getting a signal. Yeah, I heard that, but yeah, it I seems don't hear to you. be... Uh, we were talking about evolution, and mm -hmm. I was saying that one thing is to show is to explain to people that they're having natural reactions and then niche selection where we spend our lives to some degree constructing an environment that fits us and that I, I, do we get better at this or are we just you know not so good at it because all the goodies out there are so attractive that we give up things that make us comfortable or flourish in order to get certain goodies that are glittering out there I don't know. I, I feel with myself as I've gotten older, I've gotten 10% or 20% better at <laughs> constructing an environment that fits me and makes me feel okay, even if I have to give up a few goodies out there. And so uh, we're doing that all the time. And I think as a clinical concept, this is very important. There's enormous individual variation in human personality and emotional structure. That's one basic fact, enormous variation that's normal. With this normal variation, we need to encourage people to find their way in society in a way that fits them and isn't a cookie cutter version of a person going for everything that's glittering out there necessarily, or that focuses them in a way that potentiates them. So niche selection is the second uh, point I would make. The third point is the basic, such a basic point, that social structure um, has to be identified for what it is. It's not necessarily pathogenic, but it's certainly causing distress in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And we have a choice. We can in actually intervene to change social structure instead of psychiatrizing everybody, or we can at least identify the ways that it does this and try to minimize the effect. We can help people because of normal variation. There will be some people who naturally can handle certain things and others that can't, and right. we should try to encourage them. Um, um, we do this to some degree, and then we over-pathologize as our way of getting people help. So an example would be the DSM diagnosis of sleep disorder, which is there's a DSM diagnosis of circadian rhythm disorder shift work type. Now, I don't really believe anybody out there, upon reflecting, is going to think that difficulty adjusting to sleeping during the day and being up all night on a job is a mental disorder. I think that's the way we're biologically designed and most people's circadian rhythms naturally operate that way. But in the United States, a, a sizable percentage, I forget, 15%, whatever it is, of all jobs require shift work. Mm -hmm. And many people have tremendous difficulty adjusting to it. 
it's in the manual. It's probably not a mental disorder, but by justice, you should try to help people to adjust to it. And I think it's good that we try to help people. So things like that and the social phobia, I think an area I worked on long ago, it was conduct disorder in adolescence. So in adolescence, conduct disorder in the DSM is defined by a set of behaviors that are deemed antisocial, like fighting, getting into you know, gang fights and so on. The problem with that is, as I expressed in many articles, and it actually led to a small change in DSM, is that many teenagers are in communities or situations, living situations, where they are threatened. And mm -hmm. the only safety they can find is to join a group, a gang. And right. so right. if they do that, they have to adopt the gang's norms in order to survive in that gang. So this is not a mental disorder. This is a natural response of anxiety. It's a natural response of safety. Um, and so here we have a situation where pretty clearly the response that's appropriate is to change the environment rather than pathologizing all the kids who are reacting to this negative environment. Um, but that's difficult in psychiatry to get that point across. They did add a paragraph to the conduct disorder description in DSM expressing this idea as a result of the work I did. But still, the point is, that's a case where social action is being, to some degree, down uh, ignored, in part because of the belief that this is a psychiatric disorder of individuals rather than a social problem of modern environments not providing normal resources and opportunities for people. So I believe the evolutionary view can have a powerful impact on how we think about distress and deviance, social deviance, how we think about what we should do about it. Right. So um, I have one last question then. Of course, I think we've already been touching a little bit on this throughout the interview, but just to get more specific, uh, what do you think are the instances where uh, normal anxiety, normal depression, I mean, by normal, I mean normal depressive and, and anxious reactions to uh, life events or episodes, something like that, should be treated clinically? Right. This is always a problem. One thing I need to say right at the outset is that my critique of psychiatric criteria for disorder mm -hmm. is not an argument that people without disorders should not be treated. Right. One could argue, I mean, there is an argument one can have, and it's a complicated one, about whether people with true disorders, which tend to be more severe on average, should have more priority and not get swamped by all the other diagnoses. So that if we made this distinction, treatment resources could be more targeted. The example being, let's say, with antidepressants, they seem to be more effective with severe cases that are probably more genuine disorders instead of being given out to everybody and causing a lot of negative side effects in people who don't even have a disorder, that might be a better way of approaching it on average. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, so there is that question. Um, but I think informed consent, in my mind, is critical here as an ethical principle. Um, I understand we have an ethical issue here that's two ethical issues. One is informed consent. Let's say you come into me, <clears throat> you're a student in school, high school, who's having trouble uh, meeting the, st sitting at your desk. I think you're a perfectly normal, rambunctious kid, but I know that if I give you Adderall, you might do better in school, it might get you into a better college, you might get a better job, your parents would be happy, you'd be happy, and society would be happy. Do I give you Adderall? <laughs> According to the New York Times, they did a whole series on psychiatrists who said, yes, we will help students like this who we don't believe are disordered to do better in school by, medical, uh, by medicating them. So similarly in other areas, anxiety, depression, um, there's an ethical question of whether you treat, whether it's psychotherapy or medication, here, one major ethical issue that I mentioned is informed consent. That do you explain to the client the situation? You know, I think given what I hear about your life, you're having a pretty understandable reaction given how you're interpreting it and what's happening. But that's still, so it may not be like a true mental disorder, but I think we could still help you and do a lot by talking about this, or maybe by taking some of the edge off your anxiety with a medication, um, you and I might be able to then work on this better than we would, you know. So in other words, with informed consent, you discuss it with the client, the true situation. What I object to is not treating people that don't have mental disorders. Everybody deserves help, frankly. What I object to is misclassifying people as having mental disorders, which biases the treatment outcome. Now, that brings us to the next level of the ethical issue. The next level is what something I've dubbed the clinician's dilemma, because every clinician out there, especially those in private practice, but also in agencies, is faced with the dilemma in the United States, especially, that reimbursement is only available or usually only available, except in certain exceptions, if you have medical necessity, that is if there's a disorder that's diagnosable under DSM or ICD. Mm -hmm. That means that whatever you're treating, you've got to classify it as a mental disorder in order to treatment, to treat it. This is routine in the United States. And I mean routine even where it's obviously not, I mean, if you go in to a clinic, most clinicians, I shouldn't generalize, but most clinicians in the United States, if you go in with marital conflict, you're in really horrific marital arguments and despair about your marriage, considering separation. Nobody thinks that's a mental disorder. Uh, it's been rejected. The marital therapist kept asking, let's put this into the DSM as a mental disorder. Marital conflict, marital distress, that's life. Forget that as a mental disorder. So the, that'll make us a laughing stock. So it's nowhere to be found in any pathology manual. But how are they treated? The therapist will question the two uh, spouses and find that maybe one of them is feeling a lot of sadness or the other one is feeling a lot of anxiety. 
and will classify one or both as having a mental disorder in order to get reimbursement. So this is just the game that goes on. And, um, you know, I've talked at psychiatry departments where they're located in very challenging, poor communities. And at the end of my talk, they say, what are we supposed to do? 90% of our clients probably don't have a mental disorder. They're distressed chronically due to their environment and their situation. So this is what I call the clinician's dilemma. What do you do? What's the ethics of this situation? Um, I think the common common um, action or the common conclusion by most clinicians is that in an unjust system like this, where the system is kind of causing people to have distress, then they come in and they can't get help because of the way that the medical system is narrowly defined. It's justifiable to classify them as having a disorder in order to get reimbursement, in order to give them the help that every clinician in their heart wants to give. We want to be helpful. We don't want the medical system and its constraints to hold us back from helping people that obviously need support and could be better off for it. So this is a dilemma that every clinician faces, I think, almost every single day in their practice. And I wish, so that's why I've argued recently that the we have to change the medical reimbursement system, the, the this is a policy issue. In the end, we shouldn't be forcing clinicians into this uncomfortable position. Um, and, and, and also, what do you do? Do you share that with the client? Do you say, you know, I'm gonna classify you as mentally disordered. I think you're perfectly normal in distress, but in order to get reimbursement. Oh, and by the way, in doing, in, in classifying you as major depression, even though you don't have a, a real disorder, I just want you to know that you may have trouble getting life insurance later because of suicide risk, that if you ever do have a uh, marital a separation, that uh, custody issues might come up about your having had major depression or a mental disorder, and other legal and social issues could occur by having this diagnosis on your medical record. I just want to inform you of that. Do you do that? Nobody does that. But the fact of the matter is there are sequelae to these things because society, mental disorder is not the purview only of clinicians. The whole society takes it seriously and it enters into the legal system in all sorts of ways. So that's an issue that I think needs to be tackled at a social level. Um, but in general, my feeling is that depression should be treated and people should be supported when they feel distressed intensely. It might be brief. I think we can have various levels. Uh, there's a step treatment approach that I think is quite appealing, where you start with a brief minimal intervention to see if that's enough. Then if that doesn't seem to be enough, if the problem seems more serious, then you ratchet it up to some contract that's longer and maybe more in, invasive in its approaches. And you gradually do that until the cases that are really severe and really chronic, you have them treated with all the possibilities of treatment that we have at our command. But that way you have a cost efficient mental health system that nonetheless can briefly attend even to transient intense distress that 
their prevention is good. You can help people to get over it faster. It means less potential complications in, in that population. So I, I am for resources. Given that our culture is so demanding, I think we also ought to be supportive at a level that matches that. Right. So, Dr. Wakefield, let's end on that note then. Um, just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Um, I don't really have... I'm one of those people who unfortunately was born and raised at a time before I became completely... <laughs> like like in, in you know familiar with uh, internet resources and so on so the truth of the matter is you can go to the NYU School of Social Work um, website and look up my CV and look up a lot of my articles um, but I don't I, I don't have a lot of places on the web that I've deposited a lot of things. Academia EDU has a lot of my papers, if you're interested in my papers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there might be a few other places on the web where I've given lectures or talks that have been placed on there, which you can search for easily. Nothing, nothing that comes to mind as specifically a place to go. Okay, so I will be leaving anyway some links to your work in the description box of the interview. And perhaps this will serve as a compilation <laughs> of your work on the internet. This will be the unique, unique place where I can be. <laughs> I, I will, if you like, uh, Ricardo, I, I would, um, you know, I, I could link some stuff, uh, mm -hmm. uh, maybe um, lectures or, or papers. I okay. certainly could just put some papers on the, um, on the website. Okay, great. So... Uh, Dr. Wakefield, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. It's been great. Okay. So, hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Ricalania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zook, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurban, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dejda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermiti Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazevsky, Nelek Bak, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, 
Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas Francis, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.